Welcome to Bar Fights with attorney and advocate Sarah Klein. Taking on issues that matter and advocating for legal, cultural, and political change everywhere in order to protect children and vulnerable adults. Joining the conversation are survivors, advocates, lawyers, media personalities, athletes, celebrities, authors, wellness aficionados, and many more. Because bringing real justice takes a team of experts who care. Now, leading the fight is your host, Sarah Klein. Hey, you guys, and welcome back to Bar Fights. I am beyond excited about who we have on this show today and the conversation that we're about to have. My guest today is named Allison McCabe, and she's a writer, reporter, producer. Um, You've seen her broadcast on NPR. Her byline appears in the New York Times, BBC Culture, Wired, and other major publications. And the reason I am joined today by Allison um, is because she has a new book that came out recently, and it is called About Why Sinead O'Connor Matters. And if you watch the news or are on the internet, you know that recently we lost Ms. O'Connor and it's been very, very profound for those of us in the survivor community, um, what she stood for, what she still stands for, and why her voice mattered so much to so many of us out there. And we're going to dive into that today. Allison McCabe, welcome to Bar Fights. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's really an honor to get to talk to you. And I want to start just by talking a little bit about how this book came to be and the timeline of events, because you mentioned this book came out, pre-orders started in May, and then we all sort of know what, what happened after that. So when did you start working on this? Why did you start working on this? And and what is the, the loss of Ms. O'Connor meant um, as this book has come out? So I started working on this book, you know, I want I want to say sort of like maybe late 2020, early 2021. I'm a music reporter, as you mentioned, and I was working on a totally different story. And in the context of working on that, you know how when you search up something on YouTube, there'll be like on the side, there'll be little thumbnails of related stuff. Yes. And on those little thumbnails, there were a couple of uh, videos that another artist, Fiona Apple, had actually made about Sinead O'Connor. And she was reacting in one to a video that Sinead had posted from a travel lodge in 2017. Many people have seen this um, in which she's expressing her anguish um, in very frank terms. And, you know, Fiona's response to that provoked a response in me that I think a lot of journalists would just be like, close the window, (laughs) move along. But, you know, for me, I really started to kind of think about what did happen to Sinead O'Connor? You know, I was not myself a lifelong fan of Sinead O'Connor's music. Like most of the world, like I knew really three things about her. I knew that her hair was shaved. I knew that in 1990, she had this huge hit with Prince's Nothing Compares to You. Mm -hmm. And I knew that in 1992, she tore up a photograph of Pope John Paul II on Saturday Night Live. And then, you know, sort of disappeared for a long while from my radar. Mm -hmm. But I started to kind of think about like, how was it that she rose so quickly and fell so quickly from the public spotlight? And it really sent me into uh, looking at all of her personal statements, looking at all the interviews she'd given, 
looking at all of her music. I actually was shocked to find out she continued making music long after 1992. She'd made like 10 studio albums altogether, including various other live albums, compilations, music for films and TV, etc. It's a huge body of music. And in looking at all of that, I realized that the more I was looking at Sinead, I was also looking at the culture. Mm-hmm. And the more I was looking at the culture, the more I had to re-examine my relationship to that as a journalist, as a human, and as myself, a survivor of childhood abuse. And so that was really kind of the beginning of me wanting to work on reframing her story, understanding what really happened and why she matters. As you mentioned, that's the title of the book, Why Sinead O'Connor Matters. Yeah. So, and so you dive into this. Mm-hmm. And what what pieces of that puzzle were you able to sort of put together? So she was, in terms of the timing, she was, it was like uh, in 2020, she was doing some small dates on the West Coast and it got that little tour, it was a very small tour, small venues. A lot of people attended, those shows were sold out. But then with the coronavirus pandemic, you know, the tour was shut down and then she entered into rehab for trauma, for long-term trauma issues that she was facing. And in that announcement that she was shutting down the tour, there was a little item about how there was a memoir that she wrote that was going to come out. And uh, I was like, aha, because what I do as a news reporter is we have this thing called the peg. (laughs) And the peg is why are we talking about this now? So typically it's this album's coming out, this book is coming out, this film is coming out as an arts journalist. And so the book gave me an idea about that gives me a way to start thinking about where and when I can tell this story. So I got an advanced copy of the book and, you know, devoured it and pitched that profile to NPR's morning edition. That's how I got to interview her. But I knew that I wasn't able to tell her full story because we only have realistically about five minutes of airtime for our stories. So I kept going that that became the book book came out. It was released for pre-orders in on May 9th and then May 23rd. And of course, I had no way of predicting what would happen just, you know, we're two weeks out from when Sinead died. So um, I, I think that the order of things wasn't something that I could have foreseen, but I really am grateful for the opportunity to talk about her music, life, and legacy, because all the things that she wanted to draw our attention to from the very start of her career are the conversations that we still need to have. Absolutely. And that's, and that's what we do on this show. And I'm so just, again, grateful to have you here. So what was it for people that don't know her life story and what she survived and what she went through? um, What was it about her life um, that you think impacted her in these ways where she felt the need to go against the grain, to, to try to take down some of these institutions or maybe not even take them down, but just expose them. Um, what happened to her and why was this such an important part of her, her story and her legacy? So she suffered horrific abuse at the hands of her mother as a child. And she found her voice in a Catholic reform school for girls where she attended as a sort of tween. Um, At that point, she found uh, a nun called Sister Margaret, who in her memoir, she describes Sister Margaret as um, not loving her in spite of the fact that she was rebellious, but because she was rebellious. And she bought her a guitar and a book of Bob Dylan chords and even a sort of uh, 
leather parka from a punk rock shop in Dublin. Importantly, she gave Sinead the love that she never got from her own mother. And she was somebody who really saw Sinead. And for Sinead, that was really, I think, key to understanding everything that followed because having found her voice there, she wanted to use that voice. She was expressing her pain, but also determined to be a voice for others. Mm-hmm. When I interviewed her, she said, you know, I wouldn't have consciously set out to do that, to be a voice for others. You know, initially I just wanted to be heard, but I think very early on, she understood that it wasn't just her story, but that her story was the story of millions mm-hmm. of other people. And so going back to what I knew about her, the shaved hair, for example, was because at the time, which, you know, again, she was just really still in her teens. Uh, her mother died on her way to mass at a car accident when she was in her teens. And shortly after that, she signed her first recording contract. And the label wanted to market her based on her appearance because she was conventionally quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. And there was really no lane to market female artists outside of their physical appearance in the pop music world, at least. She really wanted to be a protest singer, but they were like, you should be a pop star. Yeah. So shaving her hair and wearing baggy jeans, ripped up jeans and combat boots, that was really a way of saying, no, I want the focus not to be on what I look like, but what I'm trying to say in my music. So that was really the first thing. And early on, she's doing a lot of interviews where she's pretty shy and she's having, you know, interactions with people who are like, why does your hair look like that? They don't want to talk about the music. They're sort of fixated on other things. She had had, for example, a stint as a, a kissogram girl back in Dublin, and they were oh, let's talk about that. You know, so whenever she wants to talk about serious issues from the start of her career, she wants to talk about racism. She wants to talk about sexism. You know, she wants to talk about the warped industry, the the warped values of the music industry, which is really about just commercial success above all else. You know, she wants to talk early on about HIV AIDS prevention. She wants to talk about mental illness. And this is all in addition to child abuse. And you know, you can see that she's encountering a lot of resistance even before the moment on SNL where she tears the photo. Now, so this thing about how I connect with it, you know, the thing about the psychology of the abu- of abuse is that, you know, the abuser will say, uh, you know, no one is going to believe you. No one's listening. No one cares. Once this is dragged out in the open, it's only going to get worse. And so the whole idea is to sort of silence and shame you. Mm-hmm. And I saw that as a journalist, I, you know, what I would do is I'd be like, okay, so here's what, here's the part where I'm going to bring in the expert (laughs) to say those things. Yeah. But I realized like, actually, in this case, the expert is me. You are the expert. Yes. Because my lived experience is how I learned that. And that's what allowed me also to kind of understand that part of her story. So I think that that gave me the idea early on that her honesty and her bravery, like it wasn't enough for me to just applaud that but I actually had to meet it you know I had to kind of honor it and I had to take professional and emotional risks in telling my story too and the reason I did that was because I wanted the reader to be seen and the only way that the reader could understand that I saw them was to show them myself so that said you know people love to talk about bad apples, Mm -hmm. but people are a little less interested in talking about systemic problems. So Sinead goes on SNL in October, 1992. And that day she performs a song in her second set that's not even on her album. 
Okay. It's a song from 1976 by Bob Marley called War. And it's actually uh, a, a song that was based on a speech by an Ethiopian emperor in 1963 to the UN General Assembly. And it's a song, it's an anti-racist song. And um, she alters some of the lyrics slightly so that it's actually talking about the oppression that is child abuse. And at the end, she tears up this photo. The photo actually belonged to her mother. People didn't know that at the time, but it was a souvenir of the Pope's 1979 visit to Ireland. And she'd always kept that on her dresser. And after she died, she had kept that photo intending, she said, to at some point, she didn't have it you know, quite figured out how she would do it. But when the platform was there and the opportunity was there, she wanted to destroy it, not to destroy the faith, say anything about the faith or the Pope, but to talk about the hypocrisy and the corruption of an institution that would protect predators and silent survivors. We didn't really necessarily know that's what she was doing at the time because she didn't say, here's what I'm doing. I'm holding this photograph and these are all the things I'm thinking about. Yeah. So the world gasped. Yes. And, you know, I think um, ultimately in the past few weeks, in the past couple of weeks since she's died, and I have to say even before that, because before she died, I was on an eight city book tour. So I had a lot of conversations with people on that tour as well. Um, the week after she was on SNL, Joe, Joe Pesci came on to host. And he said, if I had been hosting when she was on, why I would have given her such a smack I would have grabbed her by the, and the word he says next is eyebrows. Of course, we can now imagine another word right there. But think about this. I think you're an abuse survivor. And this guy has said to you on national television, I would have gave her such a smack. Rewinding two years before that to 1990, when two people posing as reporters came to a show in New Jersey at Garden State Art Center, asked her, hey, do you, how do you feel about the national anthem being played before a show? And she said, I prefer it would not be played before my show. And they went back with this idea that she was anti-American and somehow censoring the national anthem. Mm-hmm. Following week, Frank Sinatra comes to perform at the same venue. He calls her one stupid broad and says, he, you kick her, if I say the word, A, A, asterisk, yeah, asterisk. Yeah, we love, we love potty mouth on this show. Okay, good. Yeah. We're, no, we're not on radio, so we can say the word. Exactly. Um, but, you know, again, this is all the stuff that she's taking this in. But when I talk to people, they're like Pesci, Sinatra, you know, they want to go for the one bad guy. And my idea is we have to actually look at the broader culture because when Pesci said those lines, he wasn't booed. No one took him off the stage. Even to this day, he's not canceled. I mean, Mm -hmm. nothing, it just uh, laughter and applause. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was Sinead who became the punchline and the punching bag. So to me, I think a little bit, we have to look not only at the individual players, there are bad guys. We can all agree on that. We're not saying there aren't. But I think that they're operating within a broader context. And until we address those systemic issues, you know, I don't know how much change we can affect. Yeah. And that's a question I ask myself every day, right? How, <laughs> how does this happen? How, how do we do it? Why? First of all, thank you for all of that. There was a lot there that I didn't know. And, and that makes me insane. I think I even read like Madonna even came for her, you know? Yeah. Um, and it, th- that makes me insane and breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like, what is wrong with the psyche or with the culture that 
she's the one who's who's shunned, not because she's even doing anything, just because she's having the conversation. She's introducing the conversation to the public sphere, bring up some of these issues that have been, as we know, and probably knew back then, you know, hidden in the shadows, in the dark, dusty corners for decades upon decades. And she's somehow the bad guy just for introducing these concepts in the public sphere that makes me crazy um what do you think it is that this this pervasive i I think child sexual abuse and abuse is a is a a pandemic it's a global health crisis i mean we talk about coronavirus why aren't we talking about child sexual abuse um all day every day um, you know, I, what do you think it is? The more you dove into this, what is wrong with the human psyche or with the collective culture or group think, or what is the problem? <laughs> why, why is this still a problem? Uh, can I just, is the, are you hearing the dog barking or is the Zoom suppressed? Not at all. Okay, Not good. So all, I was going to say, otherwise I've got a Kong. I've got a Kong at the ready. Um, I would say, you know, because it's a lot easier I think for people to go, okay, you know, it's an isolated thing. You know, it's just this one bad, bad guy, you know, like we'll take care of that. And then we don't have to address these issues because these issues are hard. Yeah. And it also goes to the core, you know, the core question of who is believed. Right. Um, It's like, I think as I, as I spoke about a little bit in my book, you know, like in a corrupt system, like it does reward corrupt people, unfortunately. I mean, I think that's just the truth that, um, I mean, I just myself have encountered this, not just in the, in the writing of this book, but in, in general, like when you say things people don't want to hear, oftentimes they do want you to be silenced. I mean, and there is a kind of shaming effect, right? Where you're just like, I don't want to be the person mentioning this thing that I see that no one else seems to be seeing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you start to feel a little bit like isolated, which is the point. Yeah. Um, I think a little bit, the the thing about her mother also being abusive is hard for people because we're kind of used to the idea of the abuser being male and the abusive mother in my case my both of my parents in different ways were abusive but i would say that the bad mother idea is very hard because it cuts against like our most deeply held ideas about what mothers are and are, are supposed to be but you know there's complicity there i think that there's always complicity so that you know, um, in my case, I would say that my father was more physically abusive, but my mother was also emotionally abusive and also complicit with him. You know, I think that it's never just like one person doing the thing because we all kind of exist in these dynamics, whether it be a family dynamic, an institutional dynamic, a societal dynamic. And so, you know, I think there's a reluctance to really address that because it's like, oh, I don't want to have bad feelings about this thing if you're making me feel bad. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, if you're, if something's making you feel bad, that's kind of a clue in that mm-hmm. maybe we've got to do something about it. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. it's not just like, well, I don't want to feel that feeling. So let's just, you know, tamp that right down. Um, I think that's, that's something that we, we do need to address because again, you know, this was what really Sinead O'Connor was about. The song, nothing compares to you. Even if you just looking at that song in isolation, which was an outlier, you know, that was really the only pop song she really ever did. Mm-hmm. But what made it, you know, uh, so 
it's it just so uh I don't even know, just like a part of our consciousness. Like how many people haven't seen that video? Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's really known. It's their beautiful voice. It's the emotional honesty she brings to the song. It's the grief. And it's that single tear that she sheds, which was not acting. It was provoked by the memory of her mother. So we can love the tear. But we also have to be able to acknowledge what provoked that tear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have so many questions. So one, I just want to comment. Like, I feel like I see the, in just little ways when you're saying stuff just day in, day out where you're giving feedback or you take a stance on something or whatever, like, I, and I'm not an international pop superstar. Um, I, I still feel that where people, if it's ugly or it's not, you know, wrapped up with a pretty bow, people can be vicious and, and cruel. And like, just that knee jerk reaction of you're saying something I don't like, or saying something that doesn't make me feel good. I will destroy you. Like even in work situations or, you know, friendships or whatever, I I've just been blown away on a tiny scale, how much that happens. And then as a survivor with a somewhat known story in the country, right. Being called all sorts of names by strangers on the internet, getting death threats, being called a whore, being called a, like, I get that every single day. Then as a lawyer representing survivors where in high profile cases, you know, then I get more death threats of how dare you, blah, blah, blah. Right. But she was one of the most famous, recognizable superstars of, of that time. And, you know, so I guess my question is, what did that do to her psyche? I mean, you got to talk to her. Was she okay? What was her level of suffering? How did she manage that? How did she get through her days? How, how was she, how did she do it? Well, I think, you know, first my heart is breaking for what you just told me. I mean, you know, that you have had that experience. Um, And, you know, I think that how she got through her days was, many of the, what happens after 92 is she continues to make music, but we don't really hear about it. We in the public because it's overshadowed by these constant tabloid headlines. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that what happens in that moment is people have talked about her being canceled. And I think it's a little bit more complicated because on the one hand she was canceled, but other hand, we were like still obsessively talking about like, Oh, she did this. She married this one. She divorced this one. She's that now she changed this religion. She did this new musical genre. Like what's wrong with her? Still watching. Yeah. Still watching and under intense scrutiny. And when her memoir came out in 2021, people were still asking her, do you have any regrets about what you did on SNL? Is there somebody you want to apologize to? Sidestepping completely the question of whether an apology was owed to her, because we all now know, including the church, which has acknowledged it, that she was sounding the alarm about something real. Yes. And yet we're still asking her to apologize. Um, so I think it was difficult because she had been so maligned in the press over so many years that it would have been normal for her to come into an interview guarded or not wanting to talk or being self-conscious about talking and also she has been very open about the struggles that she's had over the years with mental illness and I think we really need to acknowledge that too because a lot of people have said to me oh no you know she was just misunderstood she was misunderstood 
right? But she was also unwell. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to acknowledge that because if we had listened to her as much as we judged her, not only would she be in a better place, but we as a society would be in such a better place. So I really wasn't sure who I would see on the other side of the conversation because Mm -hmm. by the time I actually interviewed her, by the time we met, this was over Zoom, was during the pandemic and she was in Ireland. I'm in New York. Mm -hmm. You know, I had read and I had read so many things. I'd been so deep in her story and the larger context of other pop stars that were coming up at the same time, what was happening with MTV and magazines like Spin and, you know, all the stuff around the era in which she, you know, rose to pop global superstardom. I wasn't sure who I would meet on the other side of that Zoom. And, you know, she was on time and on point and unguarded and extremely generous and non-evasive and answered every question I had. And, um, you know, in real time, I was sort of kind of thinking about that and how that was so against all the stuff that I had read, like the way she'd been portrayed before. And mm-hmm. it's not to say, it's not to say she never had a bad day. We all have a bad day. Mm-hmm. Okay. But on that, in in that interaction, no, I found her to be, and I think a lot of it had to do with maybe the way I came into that conversation, because I also, as I said, I'd been deep into this and I knew what questions I wanted to ask her. And some of them were sort of questions that you have to ask. They're just part of a standard interview, but, you know, we went went way beyond that into an actual conversation. And I think Mm -hmm. as, as we did that, it's like, she met me where I was and I met her where she was. Well, and I was going to say that I'm sure she could sense from you, you know, some, some form of, you know, kindred spirit survivor club. I don't know if you had disclosed to her or not, but so you didn't, but I still think that that's, you know, trauma is woven into the fabric of our being. And I feel like even just looking somebody in the eyes, um, you can, you can feel them or see them and that can also be reciprocated. So I'm sure she felt some of that, especially with the thoughtfulness of your questions and what, and what you wanted to know about. Um, do you think in the end, she knew the impact she made. I, I I don't know if you asked her about the Me Too movement or, you know, any of that, but did she know that we were watching her? Did she know that she was affecting lives? Did she know? I think it was complicated for her because, you know, things started to sort of turn, you know, the publication of her memoir, kind of was a, a big step in that. And then, you know, Catherine Ferguson's documentary, Nothing Compares, was a step in that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think in some modest way that my book was a step toward that as well. So I think, and also a general reevaluation of, of the 1990s, right? A general mm-hmm. sort of cultural reckoning that we've had with how women in particular were treated at that time. Yep. So I think all of that was sort of happening but it is complicated. I mean, I'm, I think I agree with uh, Glennon Doyle posted on social media that, you know, brave women are demonized while they're alive and sainted when they die. Isn't that the truth? So I think she was very aware of that. And I think that, um, and I've said this, you know, I've said this before, the outpouring of love by celebrities and other people, 
you know, in the days since she's died. I mean, on the one hand, I'm, I'm really happy to see that people are finally getting it. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I just wish that she could have experienced some of that love while she were alive. Yes. Like where the fuck were they, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Where were they? And also all these people. And I do, I did name some names in the book, even though I, I want to emphasize again, every time that I did, I was also talking about the broader culture, not personal beefs against people, but I felt it was important to actually nail it down to specific examples because otherwise you sort of go, you know, she was really mistreated and people are like, what, who said that? You know, like, oh, it was nothing. You know, I wanted to be able to show you, no, it was a lot of stuff and here's what it was. I haven't really seen any of those public figures come out and say, hey, you know what? I got it wrong. And you can say, well, she's gone, but you know, it's all the people that they hurt, whether they knew it or not by extension in the comments that they made, that's who they would be addressing if they were to apologize now. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, the question of if she knew she was loved, I think probably not as much as she needed to hear it, even Mm -hmm. though things were starting to change. And, you know, honestly, I still feel that, um, you know, since she's died, I have received, I don't, I'm not on social media because I, I'm not, I don't want to, frankly, all this stuff where people, all the haters, like it's not, I just, I, you know, to, to be healthy myself, I don't want to take that in. Yes. People do write to me through my website and I have received hundreds of letters from all around the world. And, and I just want to say that even though I'm not able necessarily to respond individually to each of the people who have written me, I want them to know that I see them and I hear them and I do feel their pain, but I also feel their bravery. Mm -hmm. I feel their bravery in telling me about their own experiences and how they relate to, you know, what they know about her as a survivor, what they saw in her music, what they saw in her personal statements, what they are now just learning about her for the first time. And that bravery, I think, is like the thing that one person, it's very hard for one person to change anything. But I think when the change happens is when we create a space for us to talk and to listen. And it's never just one person. You you referenced me too. But every social movement, every movement for change has always really started with somebody talking, somebody listening, and then other people talking, listening, and then it grows. And eventually, you know, I describe it as sort of like a chorus of Sinead's. You know, people yeah. who are willing to say, hey, you know what? This isn't, we're not going to just sit here and uh, do what the abuser, in this case, the culture wants us to do, which is just to go quietly, go away <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Being validated or discredited, but we can't be discredited because, you know, it's not just one of us, you know, we all are lifting each other up. And I think if we do that, that's the way the change gets done. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And I've seen that, experienced that. Um, and I feel that even just having this conversation with you. Um, so let me ask you this, where you reference you were abused as a child, you experienced child abuse. Where were you in your healing process when you decided to take this project on and where are you in your healing process, having brought this project to to completion? I mean, I know this is probably a project you'll be talking about for the rest of your life, hopefully. Um, but how did this change you? Yes, that's a great question. I mean, I had I had gotten sick with COVID and uh spring of 2020 with the OG, as they call it, COVID, the original strain. 
<laughs> and oh, and I had no pre-existing health issues at all. I'm, I'm a relatively young person, but you know, I was very, very seriously ill. And I think that really prompted me to really address some things that I had not wanted to address for a long time, except for people who were really the closest to me. And so that's sort of, I think that began for me around that time. Now, when I first started drafting this book, uh, I just thought I would do it basically like an extended NPR piece, meaning totally from the reporter point of view, yes. not talking about myself, not talking about journalism and not talking about any of those issues. And that was like what I originally brought to the press. All right. And the editor, my editor, to his credit, was like, can we get like a little bit more of you in there? I'm like, oh, yeah. sure. You know, and like there's this, uh, like a veiled sentence or two. But again, it was really in the process of doing this book that I had to come to terms with what this all really meant and also make that visible to the reader in a way that felt really risky, very, very emotionally risky and professionally risky because like a lot of survivors, I worry, like, is this going to impact my credibility? Mm -hmm. Are people going to see me as damaged? Are they going to think I can't do the story because I'm too close to the story? Mm -hmm. You know, all these questions, maybe I'm biased. You know, I, I, I think that the whole idea of, of journalism now, especially in today's environment where you don't just have like legacy news organizations, but you have competition from podcasts, like we're on a podcast now and sub stacks and social media and you know, some of it's bad, but a lot of it's really great. And the way that, you know, uh, news journalism, you know, has responded is to sort of dig into, oh, well, we're, we have objectivity. They're noise. We have objectivity where they really should be leaning more on credibility, mm -hmm. I think, because there's sometimes, you know what, there really isn't two sides. <laughs> there is like the, the truth and then the distortion, Yeah, you know? And so I think, uh but I'm saying that like in a position where I am an independent journalist, you know, I'm making that as an independent journalist and there have already been repercussions. So I'm not going to pretend that there haven't. Um, but I feel like it's worth it because I think there's no other way that I can do it at this point. It has changed me writing this book yeah. because if I don't speak out about these issues, I feel like that basically is silence, which is complicity. So from my point of view, I'm in a kind of space of, I think, change right now because I'm like, okay, so um, I'm just being a transparent, which I actually think means I'm in touch with how they relate to, relate to these topics I'm reporting on. And therefore, actually, will probably be less biased because I'm aware of what that bias is and I'm yeah. transparent about it with the reader. Yes. But, uh, you know, that is a matter of whether or not, I guess, there's two different things. Is there an audience for it? That's one question. And then is there an institutional space for it? That's another question. And the answer may not be the same. We may be yes for one and no for the other. And right now I'm willing to be in a gamble to find out. Yay, I love it. <laughs> Welcome to the team. <laughs> Thank you. I love it. I mean, you know, cause I think like, you know, that is what, that is to me what bravery is. It's not like, oh, I don't, I'm fearless. It's, I am really afraid, but it is worth it because this is the only way to do it. Yeah. It's the only uh, way to do it. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you. And it doesn't always mean it's fun and it doesn't always feel good. And it doesn't always feel comfortable. It is truly scary. Um, and I, I want people listening to know that, you know, it's not so flowery and sunshine and roses. It's messy. 
Um, and it's hard and it's scary, but I love what you said. It's been worth it um, for you. And I love what you said too, that you have gotten pushback and there have been repercussions. Um, I think that means what you're doing and saying is meaningful. And if it triggers, you know, a reaction, it's triggering something that needs to be looked at, whether positively or negatively. Right. I love Uh, that you said that because everybody's like, usually when people talk about being triggered, it's like, uh oh, you're going to trigger this person who's traumatized where you're saying they're triggered. Triggered. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And that's part of like what I do in the legal process. I'm like, yeah. that motherfucker's a defendant now. Like yeah. we are turning that table. Like I will trigger you. You heard a kid, you know, jokes on you, you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah. That's a part of giving, giving somebody their, their dignity back, their power back They're helping them stand a little bit taller. Um, yes. so I, I love that this has been a personal journey for you um as well as as a project that all of us can can benefit from um if you were to give us you know some some final gold from what you gleaned from this um whether it was something you heard um from Sinead or you learned yourself what is that final gold that my listeners um can take from this deeply deeply important conversation I would be honored to I I keep coming back to one of Sinead's songs from 1994 called famine and she's talking about connecting her experiences to the experiences of the Irish people and in that song she says if there ever is going to be healing then there has to be remembering and then grieving so that there can then be forgiving. There has to be knowledge and understanding. And I think if we get that, we will find a path forward together. Maybe the most beautiful thing ever offered here on the show. I'm going to leave it there because there's nothing more to say. You guys, Allison McCabe, the book is called Why Sinead O'Connor Matters. You can find it on Amazon. Allison, I know you're not on social media. Where else, if my listeners want to find you and read some more of your work, where else can they find you? Okay, it's Allison, A-L-L-Y-S-O-N, McCabe, M-C-C-A-B-E.com. I love it. Simple. You guys, thank you so much for being here. Allison, my heart is full. I am grateful that you exist. I am grateful for seeing me, seeing Sinead in the way that you did. And I want you to know, I see you right back. Thank you. It's been an honor and I'm deeply grateful. Likewise. Thanks so much for the work you do. for listening to Bar Fights with attorney Sarah Klein, taking on issues that matter. Please check out our website at barfightspodcast.com, Instagram at barfightspodcast, or Twitter at barfights underscore pod for the latest show updates and archives.